This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Have you been to the old state house in downtown Hartford? If not, you may have missed your chance. That's because the Connecticut General Assembly closed the historic landmark June 30th to save money, given Connecticut's ongoing budget problems. Today, where we live, we hear from historians who see the old state house as a vital connection to Connecticut's past. From the Portland, Connecticut brownstone that makes up part of the building, first erected in 1796, to the important court trials that happened inside its walls. Connecticut residents know the state's fiscal picture is not great and is only forecast to get worse. Should lawmakers find a way to keep this gem open? Or is closing the old state house something that needed to be done in a budget that saw more than a billion dollars in cuts? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WNPR. And as always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In studio with me are two guests. First, Walter Woodward. Connecticut State Historian and Associate Professor at the University of Connecticut. Walter, welcome to where we live. Good morning, Lucy. Great to be here. Also with us is Jody Blankenship, CEO of the Connecticut Historical Society. Thanks for coming in today, Jody. Thank you, Lucy. I'll start with our state historian. So tell us about the old state house. Why is this such a significant place here in Connecticut? You know, if, if Connecticut has a lot of places that I think qualify as historical sacred ground, but the site of the old state house has to be preeminent. It was the origin. The first meeting house in Hartford was on the grounds, so this was the site where the first witch trial in Connecticut was held. It is the site where the fundamental orders that many people argue was the first written constitution in America. It was drawn up at the old state house grounds. The uh, uh, Washington and Rochambeau met on this site during the Revolution to plan the campaign against the British. When the State House was built in 1796, it was this beacon of stability in a country that was new and kind of shaky, and Connecticut made a statement with this Charles Bull Finch building. It's the oldest State House standing in America. It was the site of the Amistad trials. It was the place where General Nathaniel Lyon, the first Union general killed in the Civil War, he was brought to Hartford and laid in state at the old State House. Uh, Jimmy Carter gave the state the Nautilus, the world's first nuclear submarine in 1981. P.T. Barnum served in the legislature here. The the stories just go on and on. The, the, the old State House was the seat of Connecticut government from the time it was built until 1887, and all three branches met there. So everything that happened in Connecticut for nearly a century went in that door and came out that door. Um, I'm reading that you've been state historian since 2004. I have. You've obviously seen uh, the old state house evolve, and I know this is not the first time that financial issues with the state has uh, plagued the, this this landmark. And there are, uh, I think, a few times where it almost closed. You, Can you talk about um, you know how we've reached this point? Well, it's you know the 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 old state house is, I think, one of the great history success stories. Uh, the Connecticut Historic, well, even before the Connecticut Historical Society got involved, the Old State House Association and a man named Bill Foudy oversaw the restoration in the early 90s, made it the stunning building that it is today. And Foudy promoted the uh, building with an, an enthusiasm, enthusiasm that would have made P.T. Barnum happy. He had a cannon he'd shoot off on the State House Square, and <laughs> everybody around would go, What's that? And. Uh, <laughs> Then later, CHS took over management and operation of the building, and they built this incredible 
History is All Around Us exhibit that is a 200-year demonstration exquisite of Connecticut history, Hartford history, and they did a great job. And then in recent years, the Connecticut Public Affairs Network took it over, brought in some very uh, extremely talented people, Sally Whipple, Rebecca Tabor-Conover, Brian Cofrancesco. They have turned this not just into a great site for history, but for civic engagement as well. History Day is run out of there that has thousands of Connecticut school children, more every year, doing the you know personal research that helps them learn the analytical skills we need good citizens to have. Last year, they started a program called Kid Governor that kind of mag- it, it magnified the state. It just got people really excited, kids really excited about being part of government. And, uh, a young lady from East Hartford became the state's kid governor and had an office funded by the town of East Hartford or the city of East Hartford but, you know, I don't think she'll be in it, at least not for the moment. So these stories, it's been a wonderful success story. And, you know, I think all of us were stunned when we heard that it was closing. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You're hearing from Walter Woodward, Connecticut State Historian and Associate Professor at the University of Connecticut. Today we're talking about the closing of the Old State House, one of the consequences of a, a tough budget year. Also in studio with us is CEO of the Connecticut Historical Society, Jody Blankenship. Can you talk about um, the role that the Connecticut Historical Society has played uh, with the Old State House and, and now what happens? Sure. So the Connecticut Historical Society came in in the early 2000s to help out with the management of the uh, with the old state house. We built the exhibit as Walt had um, spoken about, and um, since then uh, we have been managing the collections and the care of the exhibit over time. So what what would most people find there if they were to walk in? Oh, there's some incredible things there. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful fire engine that belong to the Hartford Fire Department. There is a Mark Twain's bicycle. There are great monuments to Yukon basketball. Um, and also just a, an overview of all the the development of Hartford over time. You'll see G. Fox's original sign. Uh, just so many great things. And uh, why did the Connecticut Historical Society step away from managing? Well, the as you can imagine, any old building costs a great deal to maintain. And so we're hearing that again and again and again. So um, over time, uh, we were asked to come in in the early 2000s to help out in the management of it. Um, but we we found that the care of the facility, the, the, the capital expenses were a great, uh, great expense. And we couldn't afford to continue to maintain that and so we formed a partnership with the legislature where they would take on the care of the building and then they would contract the day-to-day management of that. And therein lies the crux of the problem, right? So it costs a lot of money to keep this building up and running. Um, so, I mean, what are the solutions? What could happen now with the, the, the old state house again has been closed since June 30th? Um, I'll start with you, Walter, well, the state the- historian. You know, there, there is no question that the state is, has a structural economic problem that has to be addressed. So everybody's got to tighten their belt. And there's, you know, certainly the history community is, in general, which like so many cultural 
uh, institutions depends on state support as part of the mix to fund things. The history and heritage are more than willing to bear their share of the burden. But to to really, you know, to start with the old state house and Connecticut Humanities, which is the largest re-granting institution to state history organizations, uh, you know, there are many people around the state who think that was a decision that was made for expedience. It had to be done quickly. People made the best decisions they could. But it, I think with further thought, they would have spread the load more widely and the impact, you know, they're striking right at the heart of history and heritage programming in Connecticut. And at a time when, you know, I'm also a UConn professor and I'm going to be one of the people coming to Hartford next year. I've been talking for a year about what it's going to be like to have the old state house and the Wadsworth Athenaeum a couple blocks away to be able to take students there. And the idea that, you know, we'll be looking through the window from the outside is very saddening. I, I, I would hope there's a way to address the state's economic needs that are serious and everybody wants to, but in a thoughtful manner that will keep these really vital institutions serving the public. How much money is the state saving by closing the old state house? Well, you know, that's that. I, I'm not privy to the full details. What I do know is that the budget last year for operations of the state house was six hundred thousand dollars. When the uh, when the old state house was transferred from the Office of Legislative Management to the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, they were given a four hundred thousand dollar budget. So they trimmed it by two hundred thousand, and you know this was on top of a ten million dollar cut that Deep had already experienced. So. They inherited a really, really tough problem, and I appreciate uh, how hard it is for them to figure out how to handle this. Um, we did reach out to the uh, State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, or DEEP. Uh, in a statement, the agency says, to date, no agreement has been signed and discussions to finalize a transfer agreement continue. So again, that transfer of management from the um, Office of Legislative Management to um, the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. It goes on to say, since the legislature did not provide sufficient funding for DEEP to operate the old state house, we've been clear in saying we cannot sign an agreement to transfer it until all artwork and artifacts value on loan from elsewhere are removed from the building. This will help reduce expenses for security and other items. So I want to turn back to the CEO of the Connecticut Historical Society, Jody Blankenship. Have you have they reached out to um, institutions like the Historical Society or other museums? And what happens with the with all of the memorabilia inside the old state house? Sure. So uh, we have had informal discussions with the offices of Legis- the Office of Legislative Management um, and the uh, and Deep. Uh, but we have not gotten any formal request to remove any material from the old state house. And I, I would just like to say, too, that um, OLM, uh, Office of Legislative Management, has really done a f- fantastic job of caring for this building over time. Uh, they they took on a, a, a big chore, and uh, they've done a great job. It, it is true. When you go through the building, it's stunning. It's really and they, and they just I think did a tremendous investment in a new roof. So, it's a it's a physical plant that when you go into the old Senate chamber and you see the Gilbert Stewart portrait of George Washington and the sun coming through those windows, you understand the early days of America and the early days of Connecticut as a state 
in a way you you'll never find from a textbook. And you know, if that goes, if that closes, if that shuts down, something I think vital is truly lost. Um, I wanted to um, give you the final question, Walter, before we run out of time. Um, the state is looking again to remove a lot of the artifacts, memorabilia inside the old state house. If that happens, do you feel like that's the end? That the chances of once everything is removed from that building, it will not reopen? You know, it's uh, I yeah I I don't know how. Once you take out the Gilbert Stuart painting, you take out the Benjamin Trumbull paintings, you take all those wonderful artifacts from the Connecticut uh, from the Connecticut Historical Society, you put them someplace else and years go by, it's Humpty Dumpty. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Jody Blankenship. Yeah, I I just wanted to say that um, if things were removed from the old state house, uh, they will be available through the Connecticut Historical Society. We're right here on Asylum Avenue and you can come into our research center and you'll be able to see almost anything that's on display at the old state house right now. But again, they haven't been, we haven't been asked to remove anything, but should that happen, you'll be able to see them at CHS. I want to thank Jody Blankenship, CEO of the Connecticut Historical Society. Also, Walter Woodward, Connecticut State Historian and Associate Professor at the University of Connecticut. Hopefully we'll hear a resolution to this issue in the coming months. But I appreciate both of you coming in. Well, thank you. Thank you. After the break, we'll dig into the First Amendment as part of an occasional series called Know Your Rights. This is where we live. where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Given the political rhetoric seen this election year, we thought it would be a good time to start an occasional segment on the show called Know Your Rights. The idea came out of a recent interview we did with assistant public defender in Hartford, Tejas Bott, about the 50th anniversary of the Miranda Rights, or our right to remain silent. Tejas Bott is back in the studio with us. Hi, Tejas. Hi, Lucy. So we thought, what better way to start than the First Amendment? Our intern, Olivia Piper, went to West Hartford to ask everyday people, do they know the First Amendment? Do you know your First Amendment rights, and could you recite them? No, I don't. Not verbatim, but yes. Freedom of speech, correct? (laughs) I don't know what that means. (laughs) I don't know. Me neither. (laughs) Let's see, First Amendment. Um, Freedom of speech, freedom of religion... And I think um, right to assemble. So our, our last, uh, uh, the last person interviewed, uh, she she had it pretty well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> she had I think three out of the five that that are in the First Amendment. And I'm writing it down right now. And just like most of the people that you interviewed, um, I seem to have lost the fifth one. So there's speech, religion, assembly, press. And the one that people forget and has been sort of neglected over the years is the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. Uh, the idea was, I, th- I think I read somewhere, that you were, you should have been able to walk up to the Capitol in D.C. and walk in and, and say to your re- legislator, your representative, here are my problems. You need to fix them. Uh, that's not possible anymore, <laughs> but it's in there. It's in the First Amendment. Were you surprised uh, to hear uh, the people that were just interviewed uh, on the streets uh, didn't know the First Amendment? Sadly, no. Um, I There's a report by the First Amendment Center, I believe. They, they do a state of the First Amendment every year, and I was just looking at it this morning prior to coming here, 
And I think the average percentage of people who can recite all five is really low, 20 or 30 percent. Um, most people are familiar with you know, speech and religion, uh, but that's about it. I think most people don't know about the rest or can't remember the rest if you ask them off the street. Lately, we hear a lot about the Second Amendment. We do. I think a lot of people are very familiar with the Second Amendment, although constitutional scholars will disagree about what it means. But yeah, yeah, we hear about that more than anything else. So we'll have to save that for another segment. But can you take us back to the context of when our so-called founding fathers came up with the First Amendment and our other Bill of Rights? Absolutely. I think it's important to remember, just like a lot of the other amendments, and um, uh, especially in the Bill of Rights itself, that these all came about, these are ideas that came about when uh, the the settlers moved over from England, there was a lot of reason, a lot of reasons for moving from from England, separating from um, the 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 empire. There um, are reflected in what are a Bill of Rights. The the First Amendment, the, the Puritans came over because they wanted to avoid being persecuted. They wanted to have the right to practice and follow their own religion, and so that was very critical um, in coming over. And I think that then developed over the next 100 years or so into this general right of exercise of a free exercise of religion for all. And, and the history is actually really interesting and fascinating because what happens is when, when they come over and, and in Massachusetts they form colonies, um, the Puritans wanted their religion to be the only one. And that's sort of the what we see a lot of today as well, you know, in, in the free speech context, in the free religion context, it's the right to free speech for me, but not for you. And that's sort of what it was back then was we want to practice our religion and make our religion the um, the official religion of government. Um, Roger Williams in, I believe, the 1650s or 1660s, um, who is, I guess, known to a lot of people in Connecticut, uh, had a different view. He was a Puritan, but he thought to himself that this is not what my God tells me um, religion should be. It should be up to the conscience of each individual person. So he goes off and founds Rhode Island mm -hmm. where he says people who want to practice other religions can come here and do so. And then that blossoms um, over the years and takes root. Uh, I will note that Connecticut in 1708 passes the first dissenter statute and allows full liberty of worship, but only to Anglicans and Baptists. Um, <laughs> But over the years, this takes hold. Uh, there's a very famous um, Virginia, um, I believe it's called the Virginia Declaration of uh, Rights. And in it is this idea that everybody should have the right to exercise um, the religion of their choice and the government should not impose a religion. So there was a period of time where a lot of the original colonies and states had official religions. And that was finally uh, disestablished, I think, in the 17, uh, 1790, 1795, something like that. But, but you know, right around that time. Um, and I think the idea of the First Amendment with religion, with speech, the idea that people should be able to have open discussion of, of, of thoughts and ideas and policies was really important to the fact fathers when they came over. Um, there's, a, there's a quote that I, that I pulled up. It's from a Supreme Court decision by Justice Brandeis. And, and he says of the founders, they believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth. That public discussion is a political duty and should be a fundamental principle of the American government. 
that it is hazardous to discourage thought, hope, and imagination, that fear breeds repression, that repression breeds hate, and that hate menaces stable government. And recognizing the occasional tyrannies of governing majorities, they amended the Constitution so that free speech and assembly should be guaranteed. It's a long quote, but um, very simply put, in another case, Justice Robert Jackson called it the right to differ. And that's what the First Amendment embodies, is the right for all of us to differ from each other and, more importantly, from the government. We should have our, of the ability to express our own thoughts, to assemble, to um, show unity in those thoughts, to practice the religions that we feel comfortable practicing and to not have the government impose on us restrictions on what we can say, restrictions on what we can believe in, and restrictions on um, where we can meet and how many people can gather and things like that. So it allows, it gives power to the individual against the government. And that's why, so that's sort of the historical context of why it's so important and is the First Amendment and is, some would say, the most critical amendment. So over the decades, uh, give us some examples of how um, lawmakers and experts have struggled to interpret the First Amendment. So it's <laughs> – I think people are still struggling to interpret the First Amendment. The, the, the problem is that they um, – the, the language as written seems very clear, but times change. And then the question becomes how do we apply something that um, – was not envisioned at the time of the writing of the amendment to modern-day uh, scenarios. Uh, that's sort of what the the the, the struggle has been um, over the years. New situations arise um, that call for novel interpretations. I mean, m- let's take, for example, the free exercise clause of of the First Amendment, which is that a person should have the right to uh, have the freedom to exercise their own uh, religious beliefs. Um, And we can talk about, say, that in the context of um, same-sex marriages. And people, there are some people who still or in the past have expressed sort of a religious conviction against same-sex marriages. So the question becomes, how is that interpreted by courts, are people allowed to to do that? Can they say I have um, the religious? My religious beliefs prevent me from, for instance, serving people who are uh, who are gay, and that's um, something that that we struggle with. I think another thing that that uh, politicians struggle with is um, uh, espionage, uh, whistleblowing, people who. Uh, are performing in their minds this important civic duty of bringing to light government wrongs, government excesses, and how should society handle that? Um, schools, what is the extent of religion in schools? That's a, that is um, a complicated issue. What is the extent of speech in schools uh, or speech in public places? Uh, these are all really important issues. Um, one of the, the clauses that we don't really talk about is the right to assembly. But that played a huge role in the civil rights movement. Um, all these marches, and you see it today with uh, uh, a lot of the protests, the Black Lives Matter, the Second Amendment protests. So over the years, I think there's been a lot of struggle interpreting it because times change, because people have deferring views. And I think it's important to remember that a lot of people, um, like politicians who use the First Amendment or, or quote it are, are sort of doing it in order to get political gain you know, and, and for themselves. You know, I mean, people have the opinion that 
that this sort of speech should not be allowed because it, it doesn't further my position. Um, Donald Trump has, I think we're going to play a quote eventually about about the libel laws. Um, and I think so that that's what we struggle with because it's complicated, but because it's also we're we're attempting to apply this clause to so many new scenarios over the years. Can we talk about you mentioned um, recent years that uh, we see more and more protests with uh, the Occupy movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. What are some instances where the, the First Amendment doesn't protect our right to protest? The right to um, assembly, freedom of association, basically, um, is is the one that they use a balancing interest in, which is um, they should fit in the time, place, and manner uh, doctrine. People should peaceably convene to picket, protest, distribute um, handbills, pamphlets, that sort of thing. Um, and that's protected. That's allowed. We should have the right to gather um, and to express a point of view uh, in either in protest or in support of something. Where that is restricted is where the protest or the assembly interferes with other generally applicable health, safety, welfare laws, that sort of thing. So you'll see, especially I think in Ferguson and then from Ferguson on, you hear a lot about protests being required to be restricted to sidewalks because the argument is that if you're walking on the street, it could be a safety issue. You're blocking cars. You're blocking traffic. It makes it more difficult to to control. Um, These are restrictions that they sort of try and use to limit the scope of of this assembly, and it's been upheld to be okay. But we have to be careful because what I think one of the complaints from Ferguson was that these restrictions were being used – in, in essence, to, to serve as an end run around the right to assemble in the first place. You know, you're blocking off streets and you can't go down these streets and, and limiting protesters to the outskirts of the areas where where the event is happening. I mean, that serves to undermine the right to assemble. So there are restrictions, but I think we should be very careful in saying that these restrictions should be regularly and easily applied because they can be used to circumvent the basic fundamental rights people to gather and protest something. In these protest movements, uh, we've seen many people starting to uh, videotape or record the police using their cell phones. Um, is that right protected? I, wasn't there a case, a federal uh, a judge that ruled that um, people should not be allowed to do that? So, so there are some conflicting uh, cases uh, across the country on that. My position is that if a police officer is out in public performing his duties as a police officer um, and a, and a and a member of the public is standing um, sort of nearby, there's nothing that prevents that person from videotaping or recording. Um, I, f- I find it sort of odd that people would object to something like that. I, it's, it provides an oversight. Um, but also, if you're a police officer and you're out in public and you don't want to be videotaped, then what are you doing? Should you be doing what you're doing if you don't want the people to see what you're what you're doing. You've seen that in, in the city of New Haven, I think. Absolutely. And there were uh, a bunch of cases in New Haven, and I think there was um, a couple of them uh, gave rise to, I think, the push by Senator Looney, if I remember correctly, who's from New Haven, to um, pass a bill that, that makes it okay or, or clarifies that it's legal for citizens to record uh, the police in the performance of their duties. Now, I, I do understand the law enforcement's point of view, which is if I'm trying to make an arrest or if I'm trying to interview a suspect or I'm trying to get control of a situation and somebody keeps interfering and getting in my way just to 
uh, videotape, th- then I can see how that would affect sort of other general laws, you know, like safety and, and security. But if you're standing 100 feet away on the other side of the sidewalk and recording with your cell phone, how is that a problem? And that shouldn't be a problem. And we should embrace that because what it does, once again, is it fits within this sort of basic concept of the First Amendment, which is that citizens should have the right and the expectation that everything that the government does is open to scrutiny. And we should have the ability to challenge what our government is doing um, by exposing what we think are injustices in the government or in governmental actions. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Tejas Bott, an assistant public defender in Hartford. Uh, we're starting an occasional segment here on where we live called Know Your Rights. Today we're talking about the First Amendment. And uh, moving on, Tejas, uh, you mentioned uh, Donald Trump earlier. Uh, we've heard something that alarms journalists, especially the Republican presidential nominee, has said related to libel laws. Let's hear that clip. I'm going to open up our libel laws so when they write purposely negative and horrible and false articles, we can sue them and win lots of money. We're going to open up those libel laws. Okay, Tejas, if if Trump is elected in November, how likely is this that what he's saying is true, to open up the libel laws and sue those journalists? Thankfully, it is almost impossible for him to, to do that as president. Um, the the laws are passed by state legislators. And even if there were states that were to open up these libel laws, as um, he calls them, and make it easier to sue people who write things that he, in essence, disagrees with, um, the Constitution would not permit that. I think our courts would very, very quickly strike that down because that would be um, – that would just be such an infringement on the freedom of the press – uh, so I, I don't think we have much to worry about. In, in reality, from from him being able, or, you know, th- there's no worry that he's going to be able to do that. What is troublesome, though, I think, is the mentality that he espouses. That is, people who disagree with him um, should be uh, uh, shamed and ridiculed and then sued. And the sort of pressure that he's putting on journalists, um, this threat of litigation, which he is probably most famous for, um, can have a chilling effect. And that's what the First Amendment protects against. You cannot have laws that have a chilling effect on the press. And the the threat of opening up libel laws to sue journalists who write things that I don't like is, in, is in essence, the most chilling thing that you can think of. And I think as journalists, I think you're absolutely right. You're, you're nervous about that. I, I'm sure lots of journalists are nervous about the idea that you could have – uh, a president who says, if you write something bad about me, I'm going to sue you or or um, close you down. And that's not America. And that's not what the First Amendment stands for. When we look at our libel laws now, I mean, the person that is is, uh, is suing under that law, they have to prove that there was malice and our intent uh, to harm someone? Yes. Yeah. And uh, truth is a defense. So if you can prove that the statement that you made was actually true, um, then – you don't get uh, – the, the, the person suing doesn't get any relief. You mentioned uh, whistleblowing earlier. Um, you know, we were reading that under President Obama's administration, you know, they've cracked down on whistleblowers more than any other president. Um, he's also been accused of holding a double standard, letting off leakers such as General David Petraeus, uh, while people like Chelsea Manning, uh, who leaked uh, military documents to WikiLeaks, is serving 20, 35 years in prison. So what are our rights when it comes to whistleblowing? Is it protected? It is protected 
uh, to a certain extent. And as with all things in the First Amendment, and I think this is something sort of generally overarching, but as with all things in the First Amendment, the First Amendment protects against government action. It doesn't protect against private action. There may be um, some relief that you get if you're a private uh, employee and your private employer uh, retaliates against you for whistleblowing. But this, this we're talking about is what can the government do? And with whistleblowing, um, their cases have sort of laid out what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. So there's clearly – I think we, should, we can all agree that we should all hold very dear this idea that a citizen who's working in a governmental organization should have the protected right to expose uh, governmental wrongs, matters of public concern. Which are, the, which are in the interest of the public as a whole. Um, if I'm working, for instance, um, with uh, the NSA and I find that the NSA is spying on all Americans, I think that's a matter of public concern that the employee should be able to bring to light without fear of not only just getting fired but in Snowden's case of prosecution and a significant jail time. Um, you know, this administration has been really bad when it comes – not only the prosecution of whistleblowers, but also just obfuscation on providing information. Um, FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests are notoriously delayed. Um, from what I've seen, you know, reporters get thousands of pages with 99.9% of it blacked out. And there's an increase in classification of, of documents as top secret. So the secrecy in this in this administration has heightened tremendously, and along with it, People who are then trying to fight against that by exposing what's going on have ended up in jail for a longer period of time. I mean, you're Tom Drake, um, uh, Chelsea Manning, John Kiriakou, and there's Robert McLean. Um, you know, and the Obama administration has also used the Espionage Act, which was implemented in World War One. Um, six people have been charged under that act. Um, I think. The only the last time it was used was Richard Nixon in the in the Pentagon Papers, and that didn't even go anywhere against Daniel Ellsberg. So it's problematic for all that the Obama administration has done. It's really problematic the way they've treated whistleblowers. I want to thank Tejas Bot again, Assistant Public Defender in Hartford, for joining us in our Know Your Rights segment. The U.S. Constitution has 27 amendments. Is there one you think we should take time to explain? Email us at where we live at WNPR. You can read Tejas's blog at criminalopinions.wordpress.com. Thanks so much, Tejas, for coming in. Thank you, Lucy. My pleasure. This is Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, the Olympics is right around the corner in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Join us as we explore the buzz surrounding the Games and hear the perspective of Brazilians in Connecticut, as well as athletes and social activists. That's Tuesday. Now John Dankoski is back with us, editor of the New England News Collaborative. He's here to tell us about a new show. Hi, John. Hi there, Lucy. So good to hear from you, and uh, I understand that there's a new show coming out this Thursday. Yeah, so it's been a little bit of uh, time in the making. Uh, my new role here is as executive editor of the New England News Collaborative, which is, uh, as I think we talked about a little bit when I, when I, I switched jobs, 
this new project where we're trying to pull together all of the stations across New England to really work better together to be a bigger news-gathering operation for, for this region. It's something that public radio here has never tried before, and so we're partnering with seven other stations that are fantastic. Uh, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, WBUR in Boston, uh, our friends at WFCR, New, uh, New England Public Radio, uh, Rhode Island Public Radio, and WSHU. And what we're doing is we're trying to figure out stories that are going to try to explain this place where we live, right? All these connections between roads and bridges, uh, rivers, and of course, some of the migration patterns that we've had over the years. So these are some of the things we've started on. And what we decided to do is to make a brand new show, which is called Next. And Next is going to explore this changing place called New England. And it starts this Thursday at two o'clock on WNPR. And we're going to rebroadcast it uh, Sunday evenings at six o'clock. I know our listeners are going to want to find out. So what are they going to hear on this Thursday? Well, on this Thursday show, we're doing, I think, a program that's going to sound fairly similar to what we're going to do moving forward is we're always going to have a lead story. And our lead story is often going to be off of the news that our great reporters around the region are uh, are focusing on, sometimes investigative reporting, sometimes around important trends in the news. I know that we've been talking a lot here about um, racial profiling and police work, something that has happened um, across the country, something that an awful lot of statistical analysis has been done on. Our reporter at WNPR, Jeff Cohen, has been working very hard on a series of stories based on new data that came out from the Connecticut uh, Racial Profiling Prohibition Project. And what this shows is essentially in several towns across Connecticut, there is a problem with some sort of perceived bias in policing. Now, it's it's a little different than saying it's racial bias. What it is is actual numbers about how many African-Americans and people of color are pulled over versus white people who are pulled over for stops. And we're going to try to take a look at what exactly these statistics tell us in Connecticut, but also how this is playing out in other states around uh, around New England. And what's interesting when we look at Connecticut, so Connecticut, they just passed a law a year or two ago that actually um, mandates that this data be collected, right? So this is not something we're seeing in other parts of the Northeast? Well, here's what's interesting, Lucy, is is actually the law that was passed in Connecticut was passed several years ago. This Alvin Penn law, he's a former state lawmaker um, who himself was African-American from Bridgeport. Uh, he had said he'd been racially profiled in the past. And this law was passed some years ago, but it never really had any teeth. So a lot of the police uh, uh, officers, a lot of the police uh, groups around the, the state were compiling data. Some of them weren't. And so there wasn't a really true picture. A few years ago, a new law was passed that strengthened this and essentially mandated that we were going to have statewide reporting of police stop data. And it's going through this centralized project. It's being run in part by Central Connecticut State University in this uh, racial profiling prohibition project. And what they're trying to do is really say, here's what the reality is. No bias in one way, shape, or form. It's just saying, here's what the numbers show us. Now, in other states, they've been approaching it quite differently. As a matter of fact, we're going to hear from someone from Vermont right now. Uh, Captain Ingrid Jonas is hired as essentially the state police liaison for this work in Vermont. Uh, she she didn't actually have um, a situation in Vermont where there was a state law passed. They were just, as you'll hear from her say, they were just getting a lot of questions from drivers of color in the state. We've heard, as lots of law enforcement agencies had heard, uh, anecdotal stories from members, citizens of color saying, you know, I'm, I'm being stopped. I feel like it's disproportionate to the need here. Um, is it normal for 
for my son, my black son to be stopped, you know, four to five times a month. Uh, These types of stories from people who are concerned. And so what uh, Captain Jonas and the Vermont State Police are doing is they're working with a researcher at Northeastern University in Boston to try to figure out what the data is like there. Of course, from a from a, a, a racial makeup standpoint, Vermont is a very different place than Connecticut, uh, very different than Rhode Island, another place where this sort of uh, statistical analysis has been gathered. And so we're going to tell the stories of Vermont, Rhode Island, and also Connecticut and, and talk to at least one motorist uh, in Connecticut who feels it's not just about whether or not he gets a ticket, not just about whether or not there's some sort of a, a, a really terrible incident at the end, but it's just about the way police and motorists of color interact with one another. That's one of the concerns he has, and so we're going to tell his story as well. I know our listeners the past 10 years um, have been used to listening to you in a studio interviewing uh, guests, but this new uh, gig with the New England News Collaborative allows you to go back out in the field. Tell us about something that uh, you did down in Whitbridge. Well, yeah, so actually (laughs) the, the last segment of the show ties together a few stories that we're trying to tell in Rhode Island, in New Hampshire, and also here in Connecticut. Our reporter, Emily Corwin, had told a story for the New England News Collaborative that you'll hear about uh, chefs using invasive green crabs. These are European crabs that have taken over parts of the shoreline in New England. They're really, really bad on oyster populations, on clam and mussel populations. You know, the stuff we actually like to eat um, during the summertime in New England. These crabs are hard to eat. You can't really get too much food out of them. But if you catch them, one thing that happens is you take them away from the clams and the oysters that they're destroying. The second thing is that you can make a really good soup out of them. So actually, we uh, we went to New Hampshire and learned of a chef who was doing that. It reminded me of someone who I've spoken with in the past named Bun Lai. Uh, many of you know him as the chef at Mia's. This is a sustainable sushi restaurant uh, in New Haven. We went out with him to harvest uh, something that is also an invasive not a not a critter, not a crab, but this is something called knotweed. Let's listen to a little bit of what Bun thinks we can do with knotweed. If we took this knotweed, not just this knotweed, but we made relationships with all these different parks and all these different areas where uh, invasive knotweed uh, was a problem. And then we were to process these into these, these chips. You know, that we know tastes incredibly delicious because we've experimented at Mia's. Then all of a sudden, we'd be able to help curb the proliferation of the species and also um, put it to good use. Do, do you know what knotweed is, Lucy? You know, it's interesting. We just did a show on how climate change is impacting New England, and someone called in um, from the middle of the state says, how does he get rid of knotweed? So this is uh, something <laughs> that's just everywhere now, right? Yeah, so knotweed grows very much like bamboo, and if you let it go unchecked, it will grow a stand like a bamboo forest. And it's almost impossible to get through. As soon as you allow it to take root someplace, it will spread runners across and it will create a forest. Shades out everything else, including all of the native plants that you might want. It grows often by the side of the highways. What Bun Lai and his crew has been doing for years is he harvests this stuff both as uh, very tall stalks where he takes off the leaves and you can hear during the show him chopping down these things with a machete. But you can also eat the very tender shoots. Uh, You have to boil them a long time, but they have a a taste sort of like a collard green, and he uses them in sushi, and you'll hear us cooking some of the sushi. One thing he does say, though, is even though this this is an edible plant, you don't want to harvest knotweed by a very, very busy highway and then actually try to eat it because, obviously, it would be taking on a lot of the chemicals, a lot of the runoff, a lot of the problems. 
That said, if you find a country road where knotweed has taken over, it's actually a pretty good food source. Now, we know you live up in Winsteads. Have you I been do. out looking for, for some knotweed? You don't have to look very far, frankly. Lucy, it's everywhere. Uh, I don't know that I'm patient enough to cook with knotweed like Bun Lai is, but uh, it's actually it's, it's an interesting uh, look at both invasive plant species and also a, a really interesting look at, at the way we might uh, have a food source for the future. But before we move on to um, a tease on your next segment, did you taste it? What did you think? No, I really, I really did like it. We tasted the knotweed along with another invasive that he boiled called butterbur, and we picked lettuces and little tiny um, weeds basically out of his, not his garden, but his front yard. Every single garden or every single yard in Connecticut, as long as you haven't put fertilizer down on it, probably has something like dandelions and, and other little weeds that you can eat and make a pretty tasty salad out of. So we, we had some sushi uh, with weeds. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually very good. He didn't make me bugs, so that uh, makes me feel good. Um, before we end the show, you're also doing another piece of your show. Tell us about that. Well, you, you mentioned that uh, a lot of what I did uh, when I was hosting Where We Live was long-form interviews. And this uh, interview that we have with uh, historian and writer Colin Woodard is actually something I've been thinking about doing for quite some time. He wrote a book years ago called American Nations in which he, he says that America is really 11 very distinct cultural nations, not 50 states. It doesn't really have to do with the way we have divided ourselves, but it has to do with the way we founded certain places and how that influence spread. So we're in a place called Yankeedom, and Yankeedom, of course, consists of most of New England, except for Fairfield County, strangely enough, and it extends all the way across New York State into Ohio and into the upper Midwest, states like Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin. There are a lot of cultural traits that are very similar to us here in New England, and that's because we all come from the same Yankee mindset. We tend to value the idea of government and, and community a little bit more than some parts of the country that maybe are a little bit more interested in individual liberty. There's, uh, there's the far west. There's a place called El Norte, which actually takes up parts of Texas and also uh, all the way out to Los Angeles and into Mexico, which has more influence coming from that cultural tradition, a greater Appalachia, a place that extends to the place roughly where you and I grew up in, in Pennsylvania, all the way down to Texas. So it's a very interesting look at how Yankees came to be. Um, matter of fact, let's actually listen to one of the more important things about this. It's not just where Yankees came from, but how Yankees got their name. When the Dutch would look across the Hudson River and see their neighbors, the Puritan-centered uh, neighbors uh, to their east, they called them Jan Kass, which you know, roughly translated as cheesehead, because you know, it, they, they seemed so um, backwards and inwards-looking and intolerant and the like, and that name stuck as Yankee. So just think about that, Lucy. <laughs> Whenever anybody says Yankee, whether it's about the New York Yankees or whether or not it's about a Yankee from New England, they're basically saying, you're a cheesehead. I know some Southerners who'll find that fairly amusing. <laughs> actually find that amusing, yes. <laughs> oh, we're almost out of time, John, but um, I know our listeners like to understand sometimes how the sausage is made here. And so you are the editor of this New England News Collaborative again. I mean, how do you communicate with reporters from all these different states and find these common themes? Well, what we're doing is we have a, a team of reporters, one at each one of the stations, and we're meeting regularly, and we're communicating on Slack, and we're sending lots of emails to one another and sharing story ideas. And our hope is that we're going to come up with some themes that will be really relevant across New England. We've already created dozens of stories, many of which you've heard on, on WNPR so far. And we just have to get better at this because this, this idea of building a team of reporters 
across a region is something that is relatively new. It's something that NPR has been doing in a way for years, but that we're trying to do in a brand new way across stations, sometimes stations that have competed with one another. I like to say that, you know, if you send in a a pledge to your public radio station, wherever it is, you want to know that we're doing the best possible work with it, that we're using it the best possible way. I feel like collaboration like this really does help us use your money in the best possible way. And we've got some great reporters working on the project. My new producer for Next, Andrew Moraskin, just started today. So we've got a lot of excitement here, actually, because I I think that it's going to be an interesting program and an interesting project for us to see grow over the course of the next couple of years. Well, welcome to Andrea. And then real quick, any social media channels that are up and running for our listeners to follow? I would love to be able to promote all sorts of stuff today, <laughs> Lucy. I'd love to be able to promote a new website, a new Facebook page. But I got to say, getting all this stuff, all these places that you have to have uh, up and running at the same time, it's a little bit complicated. I promise you this. Thursday at 2 o'clock, we're going to have a show called Next. It's going to be on WNPR. It's also going to be available in podcasts, so you can download it and listen to it at your leisure. And hopefully I'll come back and visit with you periodically and preview some of the things that we're doing on the show and, and preview some of the things we're doing with the Collaborative. Well, you're always welcome here. Thanks so much to John Dankowski, Thank you. editor of the New England News Collaborative. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. Executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can continue the conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>